I want to speak to you today on the subject of prayer. Prayer is both a struggle and a delight. It's a struggle in the sense that it brings us to the place where we see ourselves as we really are because we understand God for who he is and it pushes back against our selfish sinful nature and causes us to be brought into the presence of a holy God and in that is the delight that's the blessing of knowing God better and communicating with him more faithfully and I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles or find in the scripture Luke chapter 11 we're going to consider today the first four verses of this chapter we'll read it here in just a moment in a message entitled, Teach Us to Pray. The most basic definition of prayer is that it is talking to and listening to God. It is the way that God has designed for us to communicate with Him. We offer up our prayer in faith, believing that God hears, that He cares, and that He has the power to answer according to His will. J.C. Lambert said Christian prayer in its full New Testament meaning is prayer addressed to God as Father in the name of Christ as mediator and through the enabling grace of the indwelling spirit. The disciples observed the prayer life of Jesus and having observed the prayer life of Jesus, they asked the Lord for instruction. Jesus modeled a life of total dependence on the Father. And as we've already encountered in the Gospel of Luke, there are numerous examples of Jesus praying. We learned of Jesus praying at his baptism. He prayed regularly when he would get away to a quiet and a deserted place and lift up his prayer and commune with the Father. Jesus prayed before he chose the 12 disciples and then before he fed the 5,000. Jesus prayed at his transfiguration when the curtain on eternity was pulled back just a bit and were given insight into the glory of our Lord. He also prayed when the 70 disciples returned from the mission. And in the story of Martha and Mary leading up to Luke chapter 11, the focus is specifically on the importance of sitting at the feet of Jesus and communing with him as the one necessary thing in life. Luke chapter 11, actually the first 13 verses, encompass instructions on prayer and teach us how to pray. And I would say that the four verses that we're going to look at in a moment are not so much intended to be a rote prayer that we recite together, although It can provide a good framework for us individually as we pray the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer, or as we pray together as the church has done throughout the ages, actually reciting the Lord's Prayer together uh, to give a framework for worship. I think both of those are fine. But I think what Jesus is doing at an even greater level, a higher level, is he is teaching us some principles that we can apply about our own prayer lives and our own relationship with God. And the main reason that Jesus taught this prayer is to give us that pattern for praying. Now, I believe that one of the clearest indicators of the health of your spiritual life and your relationship with God is your prayer life. 
I think it's one of the greatest, most clear indicators of your relationship with God. So I bring that to you by way of both a challenge and an encouragement. It's a challenge because as we go through these verses, we can apply this as a template to our own lives and we can ask the Lord through the Holy Spirit to help us understand the health of our relationship with God. And then it can challenge us to move uh, deeper and to be more faithful if we're not where we currently need to be. So I hope that it serves that way for you both as a challenge and as an encouragement. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, says, Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, say, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We find first that prayer is directed toward heaven. Prayer is directed toward heaven. Verse 2 says, when you pray. So Jesus is expecting that Christian people would pray. That in our relationship with God, that this would characterize us, that we would be a people of prayer. When you pray, this is how you should pray. Say, our Father in heaven. What we're recognizing is that there is a holy God who is created and who sustains all things. He is all-powerful, He is all-knowing, He is ever-present, and He invites us to address Him as Father. Now, the invitation to address the God of all eternity as Father is no small thing. Because when you pray to God and you address Him as Father, it is indicating who you belong to, and it's indicating what your family relationship is. Now, all people in all places, have been created by God and will be judged by God. But those who are truly his children in a spiritual sense, in a biblical sense, are those who have come to him in repentance and faith. So what's in view here is Christian prayer. These are people who have called on the name of Jesus, recognizing him as the way, the truth, and the life. And what happens is when we're born again and we're redeemed, from our sin, and we are reconciled to God. God adopts us into his family, and he makes us heirs of God, yes, co-heirs with Christ. I think one of the most beautiful descriptions in the Bible of who we are is that we're the family of God, and as the family of God, we look to God as our Father, and we're gifted in unique ways in order to serve God as our Father in the family, and the expression of that family is in the local church. So when you pray and you address God as Father, it is indicating a closeness. It's indicating a personal relationship that you have with God. Philip Keller pointed out that in the Old Testament, God is referred to as Father only seven times, except indirectly or remotely. Yet in the Gospels, Jesus speaks of God as Father more than 70 times. Jesus used the designation of God as Father 
in every single one of his prayers with the exception of one. And the one prayer that he did not call out to God as Father was when he was on the cross bearing the weight of our sin. And he quoted from Psalm 22 in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus addressed the Father as Abba, Father, in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Romans chapter 8 and verse 15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So the designation of Father, or more intimately, Abba, Father, is rich in meaning. And it indicates an unbreakable bond that we have with God who has made us, who saves us, and who sustains us. And I had this thought this week as I was thinking about the Lord's Prayer and the intimacy of our relationship with God as Father. God knows you and He knows me better than anybody else could possibly ever know us. And yet He loves us more than anybody could ever possibly love us. You ever thought about how we tend to categorize people? If we have a poor interaction with them, sometimes we'll quickly write them off. Or maybe they're having a bad day and they came across really poorly and that's what you think they are and that's who you think they are and that's pretty much the end of your thought about who they are. Well, friend, God sees you in your worst moment, on your worst day, in your worst circumstances of life, when you don't respond in the way that you should or the way that would be best or the way that would honor him. And yet in his grace, he still loves you with an everlasting love. When you pray and address God as Father, it also implies respect and surrender. When he says, hallowed be the name of God, that is, your name be honored as holy. The word hallowed means holy or set apart or sacred. It refers to both God's attributes and his actions, or another way to say it would be that it tells us who God is and what he does. And the Jews of Jesus' day would have tended to view God as transcendent, but not imminent. They thought of God as so holy that he could not come near. They would not even dare utter the name of God because it was too sacred. They would be careful to keep their distance when they approached the temple because they didn't want to drop dead from approaching God in an unworthy manner. And I would say to you today, I think we almost have the opposite problem because people approach God so flippantly and without proper respect. And that even flows over sometimes into how churches operate or how we might approach things. And even though we've been brought into this intimate relationship, we are still him, recognizing him and revering him as holy. So when you approach God as Father, you draw near to a God who is loving and kind and near, but you do so with great reverence and respect because he is the authority over all. Hebrews chapter 12 that deals with the issue of uh, discipline and chastening for wrongdoing says, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? So our prayer should be that the living and true God would be approached 
as Father, as Holy, as exalted in all things. And this is the example that Jesus gives to us. Draw near to God, approach him as your Father, and exalt him as Holy. And then we find, second, that prayer makes a difference in what happens on earth. The next part of the prayer in verse 2 is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The will of the Father is that his kingdom come, that it be made manifest. This theme of the kingdom comes up again and again in Luke's gospel and in the teaching of Jesus. It is obviously a critically important issue for Jesus and for us in the church as well because we are the vessels through which the will of God is accomplished on the earth Believers who are disciples, who are children of God, who comprise the church, the church carrying out the mission, the mission building up the kingdom, and the will of the Father is that his kingdom come. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven in its grandest sense is the overarching rule and reign of God over all things. But the kingdom of God is also the spiritual rule of God in the hearts and the lives of all who follow him. So it's not just the big picture ruling and reign of God over all eternity and over, over all that he has made, but it's God's rule in our lives in the here and now as well. And the kingdom was inaugurated in the life of Jesus, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension. We are citizens of that kingdom. In this work that began in the kingdom on earth will be consummated in heaven. So what's the content of the prayer? The content of the prayer is that we pray for the work of the kingdom of God to be accomplished as people follow Jesus and do his will in the world. And one of the things that happens for us when we pray for the kingdom of God to come in our lives and in this world is, is, it, is it has the, the power to, to focus us in life. We get so distracted. Life is so busy. It's so cluttered. There, there's so many things constantly going on that, that our minds can get distracted. It's like a lens on a camera or on, on your phone or maybe the lens of your eye. Uh, all of these things have the purpose of bringing things into focus. The lens adjusts and readjusts uh, to everything that comes into the field of vision. As our eyes look at uh, there's no wonder that our eyes become tired because you think about all the activity that we take in on any given day and the things that we see and the things that grab our attention and we're constantly focusing and refocusing. And when you pray kingdom prayers, what happens is, is it focuses and aligns your life with the will and work of the kingdom. And it makes a difference in what God is doing on the earth. The psalmist prayed in Psalm 25 and verse 4 and 5, Make me to know your ways, O Lord, and teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation, and for you I wait all day long. So specifically, what's the prayer here? That God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think about how God's word and his will are carried out in heaven. It's obeyed by all immediately, with joy, without any hint of unfaithfulness, and it is consistent with what he said to do. 
So what Jesus is teaching us to pray is, listen, the will of the Father is carried out in heaven. It's, it's done with joy and obedience and consistency to the Word of God. And so it is to be in my life, in your life, and in the life of the church that we would do His will and honor Him in the way that He said to do it. Now just by way of practical application of this, I think one of the best ways that we can pray according to the will of God and for His will to be done on earth is to learn to pray the Bible. It's to learn to pray God's Word. In fact, there are many prayers in the Bible that we can apply those principles to how we pray. So Scripture itself models for us how to pray when we read it. And we can take other portions of Scripture, the Psalms especially, that may not be specifically prayers, but they're instructions for us on how to know God, and we can turn those into prayers back to God. And that's been one of the things that's been most transformative for me in my own prayer life through the years because I struggle with focus, I struggle at times with repetition, I struggle at times with boring my own self, and I think surely God must be bored by what I'm saying. And the Word of God brings me back and it provides a broader understanding of who God is, what He expects, who I am, how I relate to Him, how His work's carried out in the world. And when I continually go back to the Word, it helps me in praying. And I would encourage you to apply that to your own life. In fact, this evening in our time of uh, prayer gathering, we're going to use primarily Romans chapter 14, or 15 rather, uh, for our prayer time. That's going to be our guide as we gather together for prayer. One preacher said the Bible typically does one of four things. It tells us something about God. It tells us something about what God has done. It tells us something about what God expects. And it tells us something about ourselves. And the Bible leads to praise, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And I'd encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to help you as you pray and as you apply Scripture. After all, the Holy Spirit is the one who's inspired this word. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes our prayers intelligible, even when our prayers might not be all that intelligible. He's the one who goes to the throne of God in that regard and intercedes just as Jesus does, as we'll see in a moment. And if you'll allow the word of God to shape your prayers, then your prayers can make a difference in what happens on the earth. I don't fully understand how it works but God has designed it in his spiritual economy that we participate in his work in the world through prayer. And we get to see him answer prayers and see him do his work. So to pray our Father requires faith. To pray your kingdom come requires hope. And to pray your will be done requires love. Because we're saying to the Father, we want to do what you want us to do in the way that you want it done. Third, we find that prayer changes our hearts. Prayer changes our hearts. Look again in verse 3. Give us day by day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. When you trust God, you will bring your needs to him in faith and your heart will be changed because God will provide and he will show himself faithful. Now, some people think that when Jesus was talking about bread here, he was making a secondary uh, reference to the Lord's Supper or maybe to himself as the daily bread. 
Uh, and I think what Jesus was talking about was provision, daily needs. So let me say it another way. God cares about the ordinary things of your life, which seem unimportant at times, but are essential for your survival and your well-being. God cares about every single detail. And when you come to him with that type of faith, it will change your heart. You remember during the 40 years of, of wanderings of the people of God as they came from Egypt and they were headed toward the promised land? They encountered all sorts of difficulties and they faced a scarcity of food and there was this untold number of people, large number of people, and yet God provided for them. And how did he provide for them their basic need for food? He did it through the manna. How did the manna appear? The manna appeared each morning, and they were given specific instructions on how to take it and what to do with it. Now, I find it a little bit humorous that when they first saw the manna, because they'd never seen anything like this before, they asked a simple question. What is it? They weren't sure. And Moses said back to them, it's the bread that the Lord has given us to eat. And actually, the Hebrew word for manna means, what is it? And yet God was providing in such a miraculous way. It was made, according to the scripture, from coriander seed. It was white and it tasted like wafers that had been made with honey. But there's a key point here that I don't want to miss. And that is they were only to gather what they needed for that day. If they gathered more than what they needed for that day uh, or to cover for the Sabbath time, then it would spoil and it would be ruined. It would be no good. Did you know one of the things that hinders us from praying for our daily needs, for our daily bread as we should? It's abundance. Did you know abundance can cause us to diminish our faith? There's not a person in here that's not going to have a good lunch or that didn't have a good breakfast. You're probably already thinking about what you're going to have for lunch right now as I'm speaking. And this abundance that we have sometimes causes us to think that we're doing okay. We'll go to God when we get desperate. We'll go to God when the circumstances get difficult. But in the meantime, we've got what we need, so therefore we don't pray as we should. Are you trusting God for your daily bread? Jesus said there are any number of things that you could worry about, but you're not to worry about any of those things. But instead, you're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Trusting God for daily bread, daily provision, honoring him with what he provides, thanking him for what he provides will grow your faith and it will change your heart. And then when you trust God, you will ask for and extend forgiveness and your heart will be changed. Now understand, if your faith is in Christ, you have the assurance that your sins have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Your standing is certain in the Lord. And that's how we come to faith to begin with, is we repent and we believe. We understand that we're sinners and we can't save ourselves, so we turn to the Savior and His grace and His love and His mercy for us. But that's not the end of the life of forgiveness. That's the beginning. If our standing is certain with God, then the way we relate to God and to others should also be evidenced by that standing. Joel chapter 2 says, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning and 
rend your hearts and not just your garments. The prophet was saying to the people, listen, don't just go through what many of the Old Testament people would do to show that they had repented. They would rend their garment. They would tear their garment to show that they were in an attitude of repentance. And God was saying through his prophet, I'm not just concerned about the outward sign. I'm concerned about your heart. And the message is the same today. God is not just concerned about our outward action. He's concerned about our hearts, and those two should line up. And if you pray with an attitude of repentance, desiring not to grieve or to quench the Spirit of God in your life, then you're going to pray as Jesus instructed you to here. But I want to take this a step further. All who receive forgiveness have the responsibility to forgive. All who receive forgiveness have the responsibility to forgive. In fact, the measure with which you forgive others is an indicator of your understanding of God's forgiveness in your life. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. Now, how could it be that we who have been forgiven so much could be wronged or offended in this life and refuse to forgive? How could it be that there could be Christian families, people that say they are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet their family is fractured because somebody is holding on to unforgiveness? How could it be that friendships could go wrong and then we as Christians could hold on to whatever it was that went wrong and say, nope, I'm not going to forgive. Let me ask you this. What if God dealt with you that way? What, what if God, when, when you disappointed him, or you did wrong, or you sinned as his child, what if God just said, I'm just going to write them off? I got news for you, friend. We'd all be written off. We'd be gone. We'd be done for. But that's not how God relates to us. God relates to us with a depth of forgiveness that is hard for us to humanly understand. And yet he says, forgive as you've been forgiven. So I constantly ask myself this question. When I'm wronged and when things don't go my way, I don't try to measure it. Does the other person deserve forgiveness? Is this forgiveness going to lead to reconciliation? Is this forgiveness going to solve my problem? Wrong questions. The, wrong, the right question is, am I going to forgive with the same forgiveness that God has forgiven me? And if I'm going to forgive with the same forgiveness that God has forgiven me with, that means that it's going to be gone as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. You say, well, I can't do that. You're absolutely right. The only way that you can do it is by the power of the Spirit through the presence of Jesus in your life. And then I'd say when you trust God, you will pray for deliverance from evil and your heart will be changed. There's one last part of this verse here. Lead us not into temptation. That's literally don't bring us into temptation. It's a little bit difficult to interpret because the Bible says God tempts no one to sin, but we're tempted instead by our own lust. Uh, but Jesus is using the word here in the sense of leading us away from even the possibility of sin. So far from leading us into temptation, God is leading us in the way of righteousness, which is freeing us from sin. And we have weak and sinful hearts. And if we were not upheld by the word and the spirit, we would have no defense. But the instruction is to pray that the Lord will help us to stay away from situations that will lead us to sin. 
Now, I love the word here because the word means to be delivered in an aggressive way. It like means to rescue us from the clutches of evil. So we're praying, God, I know the danger of the world spiritually. I know the weakness of my own flesh and my own vulnerabilities and my own uh, tendencies to do wrong. I, I know that I have an enemy who wants to destroy me and to kill me if he possibly can. But Lord, I need you. And I need you to deliver me from it. Jesus told the disciples, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. He said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 41. Now it gets even better here, and I want to give you this thought, and I'm going to close. Jesus teaches us to pray and then continually intercedes on our behalf. Remember I told you the Holy Spirit makes the prayers of our heart intelligible before the throne of God. But we have a Savior who is forevermore making intercession on our behalf. Listen to these verses, Romans 8 and verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. This is beautiful, that you have a Savior who redeemed you. And now he's interceding for you. He's not just interceding for you, but he lives to make intercession for you. And even when you sin and grieve the heart of God, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. There's an accuser that wants to tell you you don't deserve the grace of God. There's an accuser that wants to say, oh, do you remember what you did? Who do you think you are that you could stand in God's good standing? Don't you remember what you said or what you thought or what you did? And he's constantly coming and he's accusing and he's trying to discourage and defeat you if he possibly can. But all the while, Jesus is interceding on your behalf. And the power of the one who intercedes on your behalf is far greater than any of the power of the accuser. In fact, he's already won the victory for you and for his people at the cross. Ian Bounds said, prayer should not be regarded as a duty which must be performed, but rather as a privilege to be enjoyed, a rare delight that is always revealing some new beauty. Let's bow our heads together for a moment. And I want to return as we think just for a moment about the words of Jesus to what I opened this message with. There's no clearer, better, uh, really gauge of your spiritual life than your prayer life, your relationship with God. If you're a follower of Jesus and you're walking closely with the Lord and you're praying and growing and moving forward in your spiritual life, you've got a lot to be thankful for. Would you take just a moment and thank God for 
saving you and being with you along the way and for interceding on your behalf. But I know in a, a group this size and probably some folks listening online as well, that there are many who would say, my relationship with God is not where I know it needs to be. I'm saved. I know Jesus. I love Jesus. But I'm not as close as I should be through the word and prayer. Friend, did you know that we're just as close to God as we want to be? He invites us. He walks with us. He loves us. And maybe the prayer that you need to pray in this moment is, Father, holy be your name in my life. I'm not where I want to be, but I ask you to draw me closer and take me in the direction you want my life to go. That I might commune with you and know you better and be more faithful as a result of it. The beginning of all of this is the prayer of faith. Trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone for forgiveness and eternal life. And I'd say to you, if you're listening to this message now or later, and God would touch your heart, and you'd say, I know that I'm not a believer. I know that I'm not in the family of God. I've never come to follow Jesus as my Savior, but I want to. Now would be a good time to take that step of faith. And God will hear your prayer, and he'll save your soul. Father, holy is your name. May it be exalted in all the earth. Help us to be a people of prayer, a church of prayer, that in all that we do, it will be saturated with a faith that understands nothing of eternal value can be accomplished apart from you. Help us as we walk with you to be encouraged, to see our prayers answered, and to have our faith grow that we would be more like Jesus. We give this time of close and response over to you and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Eric's going to sing just for a moment.